Welcome. This is Student Activist Hub Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin, with my co-host, Adam. Hello, hello. And uh, we've got a good show this week. Um, we're going to... One of the, well, we're going to talk about some of the current events that are going on nationally and, and around the world. There's a lot of stuff going on, of course, in Egypt. Um, Hosni Mubarak was forced out of office and resigned earlier uh, this week. Um, last Sunday, actually, the Huffington Post, which is sort of a cornerstone of uh, the progressive uh, community and media outlet, um, was purchased by, or I guess merged with AOL. What's going on over there, Adam? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Just rearranging the closet in the studio. Oh, there we go. Um, and uh, the so they were mer- they have merged, and there was a few things that that I actually wanted to blog about, um, but you know, time time constraints got in the way. But I might actually comment on later on. But uh, mm-hmm. a few interesting things about Ariana Huffington. Yeah, that yeah, popped definitely. up to me. Uh, and CPAC was uh, this CPAC, weekend, that so that there were some uh, interesting, very interesting. interesting things relating to that. Too. Yeah, so. which was, I guess, that's the Conservative Political Action Committee conference, and it's been going on for over a quarter of a decade, or quarter of a, a century. I'm sorry, quarter of a decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, prominent conservative bigwigs, of course, any you know, our listeners who are aware of Ann Coulter uh, and her antics, she commonly speaks there. Um, and you know, it's sort of the kickoff of the presidential campaign, primary campaign, at least for the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll just jump into whatever. And then we're, we're going to talk about local control yes, probably local, at some yeah. point, uh, in the, in the, uh, broadcast too. So, uh, we, I'm happy to jump into yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, well, first, I guess the, uh, one of the big things, and, and I'm not an expert at all on. Uh, Egypt, and so I don't want to spend time on too much time on sort of the events on the ground there. But one thing that a couple of things that I did find interesting was sort of the reaction here in the United States to mm-hmm. Hosni Mubarak uh, leaving, and you know some of the things around there. Uh, a lot of conservatives, uh, American conservatives here, sort of uh, neocons like in the Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld category, have. Not those individuals, but people who are aligned with them have been raising the alarm bells about this uh, sort of mass movement that's brought down Hosni Mubarak and are Mm -hmm. basically trying to say, oh, well, we need to align ourselves with the Mubarak regime because the alternative is the Muslim Brotherhood and extremists. And they're trying to conflate these protesters who, you know, are not calling for any sort of radical uh, Islam in the slightest, that's just sort of mudding the water to even accuse them of that, the vast majority of them. And they're trying to conflate all of them with, you know, sort of these extremist factions. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's it's something we've seen quite a bit before. Um, A few years ago, there was, um, they used to have this like Islamo-fascism awareness week. Um, And I think uh, uh, Robert Spencer came one year to talk, who's like a, a noted... Mm, I, I want to say Islamophobe, but, um, you know, maybe a more fair way to say to someone who is very, 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 very worried about, you know, Muslims, uh, you know, destroying America or something. But um, anyways, uh, this I see the the, the right wing's reaction to Egypt, um, which uh, I mean, kind of you kind of, you saw it really 
uh, some of the St. Louis people were sort of prominently featured, like uh, Gateway Pundit Jim Hoft <laughs> was sort of featured in Media Matter several times as as the official pro Mubarak uh, blogger of the United States uh, because he's so um, so you know gung ho against um, the protesters and he. Even when Anderson Cooper uh, said that he was beaten by Mubarak supporters, uh, Gateway Pundit was like, but were they really? <laughs> Maybe they were radical Islam who beat him. <laughs> you know. So, but anyways, I'm um, sorry, I'm, I'm going off topic. But uh, this, this sort of notion of uh, fearing the Muslim Brotherhood so much is, is very much part and parcel of this, this really extreme sort of Islamophobic tendency in the far right where they they do this thing where they they don't necessarily say that all Muslims are evil, but they do something that's kind of similar where they they have this term, they coin this term Islamist, and they say Islamists are all evil, and they all want to kill the United States. And basically they use that term to sort of conflate, you know, terrorists who, you know, most people, I, you know, we agree are, are not good people and, uh, need to be punished and uh, prevented from doing what they want to do. Um, they conflate terrorist with basically anyone who's Islamic who um, has political beliefs that are sort of different than them. Like anyone who's Islamic who criticizes Israel or whatever, they will lump as Islamicist, you know, Islamist um, who wants to destroy America. And so it's this sort of brand of of prejudice that they use and and i think the muslim brotherhood is very much part of that where even though the muslim brotherhood in this situation has been appearing very moderate from what i've seen they sort of want to brand them as just as bad as the taliban or just as bad as al-qaeda you know so and in fact i i was listening to a podcast uh produced by the new yorker and they had lawrence wright who's sort of the dean of you know the Middle East and, and uh, sort of wrote the looming tower, which is one of the big uh, books about, um, you know, terrorism in the Middle East. And one of the things he pointed out is that the Muslim brotherhood has gotten a lot more sort of political. I mean, a lot of the, one of the things that I think it's hard to conceptualize from our perspective as Americans, or maybe it's just hard for our political system to, you know, absorb it is that the, Organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood have, you know, a diversity of perspectives, usually because there, you know, is there are only a few political parties that you can sort of channel your grievances through in, in the Palestinian territory, Hamas, you know, extremist groups like that in Lebanon, Hezbollah. There's a diversity of people. So there's some people who are moderate and who want to participate in the political process, and those are the people who run in the elections, obviously. And then there's others who, you know, and and I'm being very general here, but there's others who, you know, are more violent and, uh, you know, say, you know, death to the U.S. and and, and want to, and death to Israel and want to take violent action against them. But I think that the, you know, one of the things that, that Lawrence Wright had said in the New Yorker podcast was, that the Muslim Brotherhood, as it's gained political power, uh, you know, and as it's sort of been allowed some oxygen to move around, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. And so one of the things that they did is they specifically said they would not participate in the presidential elections because in the United States, you know, a lot of, there's a huge faction of people, um, not just sort of Jim Hoff's, Dim Hoff, I've heard him called Dim, <laughs> out there who are who are just making 
you know, outrageous statements that are, have no fact um, basis within them. But there's also serious, you know, national security uh, individuals who are in, you know, in concerned about the Muslim Brotherhood. So they said, we're not going to run in the elections. You know, they don't want the, those folks to have any excuse for keeping Mubarak in. They said, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to sit on the sidelines. We believe in democracy and freedom more than we believe in participating in the election. And we think that down the line, once Egypt is, gets established, it'll be much better for our political, uh, you know, order. So, you know, that's one of the, the things that, that the sophistication of those groups, the same thing, you know, I think exists in, in the Palestinian territory, you know, with Hamas. You haven't seen, you know, this intifada um, since Hamas gained control of Gaza. You, you haven't seen these sort of violent, you know, suicide bombings that you saw in the early part of the 2000s. Um, and I think maybe one of the reasons that is is because Hamas has some political power and they're trying to negotiate within that system mm. as opposed to become violent, you know. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like there's sort of two main ways in which uh, the conservatives or the far right kind of get the situation wrong. One is they exaggerate how radical the Muslim Brotherhood is, right? And and in fact they've shown a lot of signs of being much more moderate now than especially than they used to be. And, you know, they're not they're not an extremist group. And then they're all they also vastly uh, overestimate how much of a role the Muslim Brotherhood played in the street protests, right? Like they they sometimes make it sound like this is the Muslim Brotherhood is leading these protests and they're really like one group among of people's movement um, that that I think comes across as very idealistic and very much pro-democracy. Um, so it's not like they were sort of engineering these protests and they're going to like take over the country. I mean, I think one thing you see on the right a lot is comparisons to Iran um, back in, what was it, 1979, um, of saying, well, that was a pro-democracy revolution too, but then it turned into, um, you know, uh, a rule that now eventually turned into modern day Iran. So, um, but, but I think that's kind of a cynical way of looking at it. And, and in a way, I mean, this is what George Bush was trying to accomplish with force, right? Like he was claiming that we were going to bring democracy to the Middle East when we attacked Iraq by, you know, by force basically, you know, yeah. like, and, and, and so this is sort of, it's amazing because this is like really what, what people were hoping for in the Middle East and Egypt is such a central country in the, in the region, you know, it's like sort of the spiritual heart uh, of the region in some ways. So, so it's interesting that they're reacting so angrily against it. Well, and you know, the other thing about it is that the, um, the Obama speech in response to Obama gave his re address in response to Mubarak falling, he made the point that, you know, Violence, uh, you know, didn't care, bring this uh, change, this revolutionary change of democracy out. Uh -huh. And that violence, uh, you know, and a lot of people pointed out the fact that that was sort of directed towards Ayman al-Zawahiri, who's uh, from Egypt and was one of the founders of al-Qaeda, of course, an Egyptian, I believe, a medical doctor who was tortured, who was involved in the Muslim Brotherhood, Said Qutub, who was sort of the... Um, intellectual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. He was killed. Uh, it ended up being killed by 
the uh, while he was in, in, imprisoned and tortured um, by the by the Egyptian government, and their re- reaction to the brutality of Egypt was to found Al Qaeda. Obama made this point that look, the whole reason Al Qaeda was founded was a lot of it was in reaction to this government that they saw that was pro Western and yet wasn't allowing their views to get out and was was sort of suppressing them violently and had partnered with Egypt, Israel, and there were a lot of other things. But the other thing that the point that you brought up is that, you know, these the American involvement in these protests was just minimal, you know, not even it's infinitesimal. I mean, a very mm-hmm. small, you know, it was more reactive. The American, you know, it was fascinating to watch the news media have no reaction and watch all of these people. There was a, a Twitter, a fake Twitter account uh, that was mocking some Washington journalists. And it said, um, yes, I'm prepared to go on television and talk about Egypt as an expert because I've been following it all this whole week. Uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of like yeah. they have no knowledge. It's sort of hit them out of the blue. They have no reaction. It's been very sort of reactive um, to the events. And, oh, Egyptian democracy, you know, I think it was is it has been born by, you know, or hopefully we don't know what the events on the ground, but but it has a good chance of getting started by this sort of mass-based movement, not by military force or foreign involvement, or certainly terrorist action. Uh, and so, I mean, that's that's a really positive, uh, you know, note to uh, to to, to uh, look at and end off uh, as we're going to go to our break. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll take a quick station, uh, or we'll do a quick uh, public service announcement, and we will be back with uh, Student Activist Radio. Um, yeah, they're hope we're st- hopefully that that came out all right. I'm not sure, but uh, there might have been some technical uh, issues with our PSA. Um, but uh, moving along, I, um, oh, and I was oh, I wanted ahead. to add yeah, one yeah, thing yeah, that ahead. I thought was really exciting. I just figured this out today. So, um, so just to give an example of how <laughs> extreme some of the like right wing paranoia is about you know Islam and Muslims, um, they. Uh, Grover Norquist is this uh, famous, you know, conservative activist who's been around for a long time and been sort of like a leader of the, you know, movement to, I think what he, I think his term was drown the government in the bathtub or something. Um, but anyways, at the at the CPAC conference, all these people are really mad at Grover Norquist because he's friends with. Um, a, a couple people who are Muslim, I think. And his wife is Muslim. Oh really? I didn't even know that. But anyways, they there some of the like extreme people like Pamela Geller, I believe, um, and some of the other like really like Islamophobic, you know, people were claiming that um, Muslim Brotherhood has infiltrated Grover Norquist. You know, like they you know they've infiltrated CPAC via Grover Norquist. Um, and uh, I was thinking about it, and then I remember that Grover Norquist had come several times to. Uh, to help support Ed Martin's um, Senate campaign, and so I, I think that might mean, on that logic, that the the Ed Martin Senate campaign might actually be a secret Muslim Brotherhood plan to take over the United States. So I just wanted you know to throw what? that I, out. I, there. You know, I never thought of it that way, and I think that for all of the conservatives li- listening, I think they should really cons- <laughs> really consider that uh, idea yeah yeah I, I i hope they do i hope they look into it some more and explore the connections probably sarah steelman might 
anyway, uh, so uh, you heard it here first, people. Um, so yeah, abs- absolutely. I, I really hope uh, Sarah Steelman looks into this, uh, investigates <laughs> it, because you know uh, Pam Geller has been uh, on the front lines. I actually saw her on Salon.com. Was she? It was that was an interesting backstory because she was banned from having an official con- sort of an official convention, and one of the people uh-huh. on the board of uh, the um, American Conservative Union, he's a Muslim. It's just funny how the conservatives still, you know, they they always keep face. I, I do give them that. The progressives, when progressives get into a knockdown drag out fight, they really go after the other people. But uh-huh. he was like, oh yeah, conservatives are so welcoming and. You know, these are just really extreme people. They're not real conservatives. And Pam Geller was like, oh, yeah, you know, the conservatives really understand this. This is just really it's one person, this, you know, Grover Norquist and the people he's infiltrated, uh-huh. you know, perhaps Ed Martin. Um, but uh, certainly this board member who is a Muslim on the American conservative movement that Frank Gaffney, who is sort of a the intellectual leader, the neocon said was, was connected with them and connected had ties to terror and so on. And so, you know, one of the, but, uh, you know, it, it was interesting that she was basically he, this board member and Grover Norquist blocked her from getting a room, Pam Geller, in the official CPAC convention. Uh, she right. wanted to have like a room about Islamic, you know, they have some movie or something. Yeah, I mean, something like that. Um, and she brought a bunch of 9-11, you know, sort of people. People who victims of nine eleven mm. lost spouses and, and and family members, but also um, were very conservative and that supported her her movement. And she was blocked from getting a room, but so many people apparently about four hundred people showed up, something like that, hundreds of people. I won't give a number, but uh, they showed up according to Salon, and they you know because there were so many people, CPAC just allowed her to have this conference room unofficially and give her uh, testimony. But it was interesting how she was sort of marginalized. I think CPAC and Grover Norcross, they're really trying, and we can maybe move transition in this way, they're really trying to sort of push this idea that the conservative movement is based on social issues and is sort of based on um, the, you know, te- or not based on social issues, I'm sorry, based on, not based on social issues. On, yeah, financial. Based on primarily. like, yeah, financial issues. I, yeah, I'm sorry. They're based not based on abortion and, you know, the ground zero mosque, gay marriage, gay marriage of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're based on liberty and, uh, you know, uh, smaller, gov- limited government and small government. Right. But what's really what's interesting is that that's not what they appear to be doing. And that's certainly not what the people on the ground seem to be interested in. Right. Like what's going on with the health care bill. You know, what the first thing the Republicans are doing, and Rachel Maddow at MSNBC has been the, been doing a, a hero, heroic effort at, at really spotlighting this, you know, that one of the things that, that they've been doing is they've been, you know, trying to push this forcible rape thing into their, it's called H.R. 3 something, but it's H.R. 3, which is the third House resolution. That's the third thing that the House of Representatives is doing. The first thing they do is elect the speaker. The sec- second thing they do is set their rules. The third thing they're doing is trying to restrict the a right for a woman to choose whether or not she should carry her pregnancy to term. And they're trying to do it through this underhanded effort of banning government subsidies for any insurance company that ha- offers 
a private plan that covers abortion. Even if the, wow. the, the subsidies don't go to plans that cover abortion, if the insurance company does it, then they can't, they're not eligible for sub- subsidies at all. So it's, and mm. of course that would basically, what people are saying is that would, you know, basically make an elective abortion all but impossible for somebody who didn't have a lot of money. Right. Um, and so, but this is what the conservative movement is focusing them, themselves on. I think Representative Congressman Pitts, I forgot his, Joe Pitts, I believe, from Pennsylvania, mm. who's the chairman of the subcommittee on health care in the House of Representatives, is sponsoring this bill, is pushing it very, very hard. And it's funny how the message is, you know, from Grover Norquist and from, you know, a lot of the conservative hedge ha- head honchos is smaller government, limited government. We're not going to focus on the social uh, you know, issues, jobs, 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 jobs. Mm-hmm. And yet what they're actually doing and what the movement is more focused on is not, you know, job creating at all. Uh, it's really, you know, trying to, you know, ferret out Obama's Muslim connections and, <laughs> you know, ferret out this, you know, pre- abortion procedure or something, you know, all of these sort of issues that norm- always motivate the conservative base, but, you know, are back in full force today. Yeah, and I mean, I think they're throwing raw meat to the base by doing this kind of stuff because I think they do eat it up, but it does, to me, seem like a big tactical mistake. Like, if they keep focusing on all these other issues, I think middle America, insofar as they're attracted to um, anything the Republicans were saying, was, I think, Republican criticisms are blaming the economic problems on Democrats, right? So if they have this big, long record of not really doing very much um, to focus on the economy and to focus on jobs, I my hunch is that that's going to really come back to to hurt the Republicans because they they're they're not doing a good job so far of of focusing their their agenda in the House on job creation. So. It'll be interesting to yeah. see how, how that I, plays I agree. Out. And, you know, one of the things that's always concerned me is how they don't seem, because the conservative movement has its own media, has its own media outlets, yeah. it's harder to hold them accountable for these, um, for, for what they're doing and what they're saying. And so I think the media, the mainstream media is sort of so frightened of being accused of being liberal. Mm-hmm. That they try to do all of this, you know, Olympic style, you know, aerobics, you know, and gymnastics to be balanced and say, oh, well, you know, try to balance what the Republican strategist and, you know, what the Republican leaders, you know, tell them when they say, well, you're focusing on abortion and not jobs. They'll have some spin to it and, you know, they'll come up with something and say, oh, well, it's just liberals who are, you know, saying things. And so the the story is, well... You know, liberals say that um, the Democrats are focused, the the Republicans are focusing on abortion, Mm -hmm. and conservatives say that's untrue. That's what the story then comes out to be. And then the conservative media doesn't, they, you know, push this story and give red meat to the base and say, look at, we're, we're, you know, look at what Joe Pitts is doing. He's uh, getting, you know, getting the abortionist or something like that. You know, he's really sticking it to them and he's, he's carrying out God's work or something. And so that what, that's what gets out, and it's nice. Because it's nice for the conservative movement. It's terrible for the country because middle America has to really 
think about, you know, if you're a casual observer of politics and you just follow and react to the events, then you might not get the fact that the Republican, you know, what are the Republicans they're doing? You might mm-hmm. just get caught up into the banner and, you know, you might not necessarily catch that the Republicans aren't doing anything about jobs. I mean, yeah. of course, the communities yeah. are still devastated. Job losses are going on. But the, you know, the media is that story isn't necessarily being told in that manner. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good um, transition to talk a little bit about the big sort of development in uh, in the media this past week that Kevin brought up earlier, which is that um, Huffington Post was sold to um, America Online for $300 million, I believe. Yeah, right, a little bit, $315 million. $315 million. Um, Dollars, um, so it was a big deal, and there are a lot of questions. I didn't even know AOL still existed, still exists, honestly, yeah. <laughs> but people say that they're a big deal. Uh, uh, so, but it, it leaves a lot of uh, questions as to um, what's going to happen because the Huffington Post um, has been regarded as it was certainly the the most progressive website. I mean, well, if depending on whether you want to call it progressive, it's like it seems like it has a sort of liberal slant and out of websites that have a liberal slant, it's the most visited, you know, website um, among those. And it sort of has been a hub of a lot of interesting discussions and it's done a good job of of building a sort of community of people. So, so there are some big questions about what this is going to mean for the the future of media. Is it, um, is it selling out, you know, or is, yeah. Are we putting it in the hands of yeah. corporations who are eventually going to choke it out, or I don't know what what, what were you going to say, Kevin? Well, and, and it's in, you know it's interesting because uh, I read a, a post by Chris Clazilla. Kla- I forgot how to pronounce his name. I hope that's right. <laughs> I think uh, that's right. Yeah, at the Washington Post, and he wrote a very unflattering profile of Ariana Huffington. He basically said that she is you know an opportunistic you know, person who goes with the flow. And he talked about her history, how she started off at, she was educated in England in economics at Cambridge. And she was more sort of progressive there and and workers' rights and women's rights. Certainly she was a women's right. When she came over to the United States, uh, she was very conservative. She was in fact, Newt Gingrich called her a member of her brain, his brain trust, Newt Gingrich, very conservative. Mm. She was the brain trust. Um, then she, when sort of the winds blew back, back in 2000, she had been, remember, she was sort of an independent. And one of the things Clazilla pointed out is that she always says, one of the things she pointed out is that it, at this stage of transition and at her other stages of transition, one of the things she does is she says, our problems aren't about the left and the right. And she's saying this a lot now. Mm-hmm. It's not about the left and the right. It's about sound ideas. I, I, I follow her a lot. And um mm-hmm. You know, she said this quite a few times. She ran for governor as an independent in 2000, remember, against uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and and the California race. She actually was seen as a pretty, you know, uh, out of the independent candidate, she was the most viable. And uh, but she ended up dropping out of the race. And then she became, you know, then Huffington Post came. And uh, after that, and, you know, for me and, and Adam, maybe you should. I'm wondering, I'm just going to throw what I, my reaction was out and you can say if it was too extreme. But when I heard about it on last Sunday, I gasped, gave an audible gasp and then 
uh, I blocked Huffington Post on my browser, and I know <laughs> I don't go to the website, which is huge because I check it every day. That's the first thing I do when I get up, okay. and so I blocked it um, completely because, you know, to me, AOL is you know just the nature of you know we we saw this with Keith, Keith Oberman. The nature of large media corporations is not to attract controversy, and so by joining AOL. Huffington Post, even if right now it still has that, at this moment today, it still has its more liberal bent, I suspect that the corporate nature is those overseers from AOL's headquarters are going to put this more cautious, you know, try not to rock the boat mentality. Or if you rock the boat, don't upset conservatives. Don't upset, you know, people in Washington who have a lot of money. Don't upset me who owns the company. Yeah. You know, don't don't upset movement conservatives who are at this point I hate to say much more active, much more organized in Republican much more organized in progressives and know how to get their message out in the media and tar, you know, organizations and, and damage their reputation. So mm. you know, I think Huffington Post, while it was independent, wasn't worth three hundred million dollars. So from a financial perspective, that was a great move for, for Ariana Huffington. Uh but while it was independent, it had this independence to it. It wasn't you know, governed from some media conglomerate someplace else. And so they could take risk. They well, could well, oh, go ahead. One, I mean, one, I think, good example is they've been pretty critical of big banks and the foreclosure crisis. You know, they've hammered on the big banks. And I think, you know, they've even been critical of Obama for being too easy on the big banks. And so that's the kind of thing where once they, they get owned by a big corporation, you start to wonder, are they going to really be so free to criticize Bank of America or other, you know, some of the yeah. other like funding institutions? And, that... and this is just I don't I don't I'm not an academic on corporations. I don't study corporate culture and, and management and any I don't have any background in that. But just there's a cautiousness to the way that, you know, corporately owned media companies operate. And there's, you know, even the tabloids, even like the New York Post. They never go after Bank of America. They don't spend any time, you know, if they go after maybe an executive, they don't try to connect it to, you know, anything bigger than that. Um, they, you know, have a very cautious perspective. They focus on entertainment. They focus on, you know, sports, stuff like the weather. They don't spend much time invest doing investigative political journalism. And even when, you know, the, the companies that do do that, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, you know, may they have maybe Washington Post maybe has one, maybe four or five. I, was, I won't say one, but four or five people who I follow who do serious investigative journalists that goes against people who have power. You know, not like what Sarah Palin doing and let me criticize her, but actually, you know, what what's the Pentagon doing? Maybe like Dana Parise or Charlie Savage at the New York Times. I mean, they have. Out of the hundreds of journalists that they employ, New York Times, out of the thousands of journalists that they employ, maybe four go after that the and actually do serious investigative journalism. And, he, and it's very, very constrained and cautious because the editors get I, – I know uh, because of Glenn Greenwald that Charlie uh, Savage is actually a very good journalist and feels passionate, but his, he's done interviews with, with uh, Greenwald. But he's actually muzzled by the editors of the New York Times, and they try to keep – 
his perspective, uh, his his investigative journalism out. They they really try to to tamp it down, not to outrage wash, officials in Washington. So, mm. you know that type of and New York Times isn't really that big of a corporation. Um, you know, it's actually kind of small, and and uh, you know, um, it's it's actually family owned. It's owned by Arthur Schultzberger. So you can imagine AOL or certainly you know NBC. I mean, Keith Oberman, you know, he was the by far the most successful host that MSNBC ever had in bringing in people. Even Phil Donahue, who was the who also brought in a lot of views, he brought in you know views. He put MSNBC on the map, but because of his you know, not necessarily his political views. I don't think Keith Oberman was all that liberal. I think he just, his style was to be very principled and sort of criticize, criticize lots of people and just have this bombastic nature. And, M- and MSNBC didn't like that anyway. And so when Comcast purchased MSNBC, the corporate culture sort of creeped in and he was forced out Um you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Ed Schultz and some of the other progressives are forced out too. Um, not, not, not Maddow. I think she's, I think she, they like her temperament, even though she is very progressive. Uh, but um, you know, I think that there's a cautiousness that was going to really damage Huffington Post uh, in the end. Yeah, I guess uh, that's right. So uh, uh, Marcos at Daily Coast has written quite a bit about the MSNBC stuff, like because yeah. he. Seems like he knows uh, Oberman pretty well. Yes. There, there was some sort of feud between Oberman and uh, the the manager. Wasn't it like Phil Sutton who was that? Phil Phil Griffin Griffith Phil Griffith Griffin. Um, and um, but uh, and the, and uh, Phil um is very uh he's very partial still to Morning Joe Joe Scarborough yeah. even Who's though his terrible his, rank, his ratings are absolutely horrible. Yeah. You know they're worse than any of the other comparable. Um, time slots and uh, you know he's just awful and yet this guy clings to him and he was very resistant to this move of putting of making MSNBC progressive in the first place and he sort of negotiated a deal um, I think Kevin talked about this recently or I don't know I was talking about Kevin with this recently about where he negotiated a deal with Oberman where they wouldn't attack uh, Fox News or something so so you can see even MSNBC which has this sort of brand going and it's profitable by being liberal um even they have they have pro- hey, i i can't wrap my head around it i can't understand because you know i again i don't know very much about corporate culture and the way corporations are managed and the way businesses are managed um i'm not an expert on that but it just it just amazes me that progressive you know first of all it took you know what seven years for Oberman to build up his brand? The whole time he was on tender hooks with the with the company, but he brought this huge audience. And you know, and the guy who replaced him is kind of I think that's what MSNBC kind of wants when they think of a liberal Lawrence O'Donnell, who I, I have you know I don't really I, he he has okay views. But his style is very much Washington insider conventional style. And he really sort of has that whiff. And I think that when MSNBC says we're going to be progressive, that's kind of what they want. They don't want this guy who's not really attached to the establishment and who's sort of being bombastic. I mean, Keith Oberman's views per se weren't particularly 
you know, liberal and, and, you know, he was, he was a liberal, but he wasn't sort of a radical person. Right. Um, but, um, he, you know, calling for Bush to be prosecuted by war crimes. I mean, he believed the war in Iraq was a war crime and, you know, maybe Lawrence O'Donnell believes that, but he doesn't go on his show and say, you know, Bush should be prosecuted for war crimes. Uh, and so, you know, the fact, and, and there's sort of this idea that in Washington, you have to be, you know, by saying something like that, it's like, you know, bad, you know, a bad mannered, ill mannered and like noses will wrinkle and people will, <laughs> you know, be upturned at you and this and that because you, you know, damage the Washington decorum. It's very, very, people like to, people are not very straightforward. If you, if you follow cable news, people banter and there's this Washington speak. They don't really say what they mean when they, when they say something, they don't say, you know, uh, I believe in this. And so I think that, 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 that was one aspect. I don't necessarily think it's the progressive views. Uh, I think that it's the, the, you know, uh, because I don't think I don't think Lawrence O'Donnell is any less radical, um, but any less radical than than um, sorry any, any uh, yeah yeah technical difficulty any less we're getting things set up but uh, any less radical than any um, other uh, pro, um, progressive uh, on MSNBC uh, or, or sort of any less liberal I think though that um, he you know his 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 mannerisms, the mannerisms of Lawrence O'Donnell sort of fit that corporate culture of MSNBC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, definitely. So, um, I guess we could, we could move on to, uh, some more local, uh, topics, local control and, uh, a couple of the other things that are, that are, uh, taking place in the St. Louis area. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's been a lot of, uh, interesting things going on with this, um, local control issue. So not, I can't remember exactly how much we've talked about it on this show, but um, St. Louis and Kansas City are a couple of the only cities in the whole country that basically do not have control over their own police departments. Um, there was some law passed, I think, back during the Civil War time uh, where um, the state wanted to have control over the... the uh, the police departments, and so the the police department is basically run by this board of five people, one of whom is the mayor of uh, St. Louis, and the other four are all appointed by the governor. And so for a long time, there have been people working to um, overturn this and, you know, uh, make it more uh, locally controlled, um, with the idea being that um, when when there's not local control, the police are not necessarily accountable to the people. They don't, if they do something wrong, they don't have to answer to um, people's complaints. You know, they're they're sort of only at the mercy of these state politicians, and the state politicians don't necessarily care that much about what's happening in St. Louis. So that's been the sort of idea behind it. Um, and there have been a number of groups who've worked quite a bit um, to to get local control um, for St. Louis specifically. Um, so one of the groups is Organization for Black Struggle, um, and another group is uh, called CAPCAR, the Coalition Against uh, Police Crimes and Repression. And they've been working on this issue since, you know, since when I, before I got to town, I think 
I think decades, but at least, you know, five or five years since I've been here for sure. Um, but what's been really interesting in, uh, recently is that, so they've, you know, they've worked on it and they've gotten some things moved forward. They got the board of aldermen to pass, um, a law or it would have passed a law to, um, create a a civilian review board, um, for St. Louis. Um, it wouldn't have had any teeth unless the state law was changed, but, uh, mayor Francis Slay vetoed the civilian review review board, um, but anyways, they've been working on it. But what's really interesting recently is that all of a sudden there's hope for local control passing. And <clears throat> probably one of the big reasons for that is that um, Rex Sinkfeld, who, um, you know, we talk about a lot in the show as being the guy behind um, the uh, mega sales tax proposal and um, eliminating the earnings tax, Sinkfeld, who's donated huge amounts of money to tons of politicians, both Democratic and Republican. He is supporting local control. He had never talked about it until recently, but all of a sudden now he's he's supporting this issue. And so it managed to pass through the Republican House of Representatives um, and now is being discussed in the Senate. Um, and so it's been kind of interesting to see what's been going on there Um with but, this issue. So go ahead. And Governor Nixon is sort of leaning. I saw something in the Post Dispatch. It was like testy words between Governor Nixon and the uh, Missouri and the House Speaker over local control. So he's sort of leaning against it at this point, or he's not really making his intentions known. Right. So, um, yeah. So he's, uh, so the, the city of St. Louis, the, the the local Democrats are pushing for this, uh, for local control, and um, have been collaborating with Rex Sinkfeld in some interesting ways that I can I can get into a little later. Um, but they're definitely pushing for it. The main sort of local group that's opposed to it is the Police Officers Association, who um, they claim that the current system is good because it protects their pensions from uh, intervention from city officials um and uh the city officials claim that this law that's going through the state senate wouldn't change their pensions um, but they're claiming that it actually would give more power to the city and the city could in the future use it to raid their pensions um so they're the main group that's opposed to it so i think nixon's calculation is you know he's Uh, been supported by the police officers associations and so that might be one of the things that's motivating him but he made these comments that i think were not very smooth and sort of really ticked people off because his comments were along the lines of well i don't have the police chase down speeders if they're people i don't like or something like that and he it almost sounded like he was implying that the st louis city officials would be um would be influencing the police department to like do their bidding, right? You know, like hunt down their political opponents. Is that, that maybe kind of... saying something about Francis Slay? We don't know. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. I mean, he, his comments were definitely pretty. You know, the city, like there was a whole Post Dispatch article about how the mayor Rainford, <laughs> some people say, uh, anyway, the chief of staff for Mayor Slay, Jeff Rainford, reacted very strongly against. Uh, Nixon's comments 
Um, so he, uh, so there was a whole article about that. So they, they reacted strongly. Um, although, um, if you listen to the full quote, I mean, I do think that was a pretty, I think it was a sort of a, a dumb thing to say from Nixon, even if he had reasons for saying it. Um, but also, um, if you listen to his full quote, he actually, um, he wasn't totally against, uh, local control like he kind of left in room to comp you know he he said something along the lines of it doesn't seem like a good idea unless there's something i'm missing and you know he left in all these hedge words where my what? guess is that if it passed through the senate he might still sign it and what exactly is i mean on the one hand i could see you know the public sector un- unions uh and public sector workers, I really shouldn't say the, the unions, but the workers themselves are, are under a pretty fierce attack. And so I can understand why. And, and plus, the city of St. Louis isn't necessarily the most financially stable city in the world. And so I could understand why they would rather, you know, I can understand their trepidation. But I wonder, you know, is, is there anything in the bill that would indicate to you, I mean, this it doesn't seem like the proposal would actually affect their pensions uh, is right. maybe in the future. Will it give the city power? You know, I don't, yeah, I, right. I agree with you. Like from what I can tell, it wouldn't affect the, the pensions and it's specifically written in a way that wouldn't affect the pensions. So I'm not entirely sure why the police officers association is reacting that way. Although I will say that um, there have been, um, people writing on um, a local conservative blog from the firefighters. Um, and they basically are accusing the city of trying to raid their pensions and reduce their pensions. And their, their argument is that even, I think, I think the city needs them to agree to, to reduce the pensions. And what they're claiming is that the city is sort of threatening all these other cuts to them unless they reduce their pensions. Mm. So I think the suggestion is that maybe if the, if the city had control of the police officer, they might use that as leverage to to pressure yeah. them to get rid of the to, to voluntarily do it, but it wouldn't be voluntarily. Yeah, so that's the impression. Um, but we probably should take a quick uh, okay, station yeah. break, and then we'll be back uh, and talk uh, more yeah. about this issue. So. Okay, uh, we are um, back. Uh, this is Student Activist uh, Radio. There is a technical problem with the computer uh, system. It's not going directly into the audio feed. It's coming out of these speakers. And so um, we're, we're working on that, and that, that might be why there's, there's a delay. But our executive producer, Lori and Adam, uh, are great at this. So I'm, we will have a solution very soon. Um, the, so, yeah, we were talking about local control. Um, and, you know, I guess in these last 10 minutes, to, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is, you know, because I, I can understand why, and I actually can see that now evolving, the point that you made about how the law might say the, the city can't bother the pensions. Mm-hmm. They, once they have control over the, the contract negotiations, they can use that leverage that they have during the, the contracts to say, well involuntarily change your pension structure and then we'll, you know, we won't cut your pay by 15% or something like that. And so, 
you know, I can actually see that. And, you know, unions are under attack. So I can understand why the police would just say, leave it be, don't change it. Because any change at this point then turns out to to hit us in the face. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, and I'm specifically talking about Wisconsin, which I read um, in the Chicago papers and also in New York Times about a absolutely draconian and outrageous proposal that's come out from the Wisconsin governor uh, that would completely decimate the public sector unions that exist there and have find a dramatic drop of the quality of living that those individuals who work for the, 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 the state government have. Uh, you know, it, it's just absolute, and it just seems cruel to me. It just comes across as very cruel uh, by the governor. Um, he's proposed to, first of all, he's um, basically limited the ability of unions to organize on issues. They can only talk about wages. They can't discuss pensions. They can't discuss benef- vacation benefits, health care, anything that might uh, be outside of the wages. The second thing he's done is he's put in this sort of what the conservatives brand as right to work, which it's just a lie. It's right to work for less. We all know that. Um, and I hate to be so brazen, but I, I read the proposal and it just is very cruel. And, and I, I um, was, was aghast when I saw it. Um, and, um, you know, so, so severe restrictions on what they can organize. One of the other proposals is a restriction on, you know, those who can work, uh, those who, who uh, pay dues. Um, the union is no longer a lot. The state will no longer allow them to directly deposit the union dues uh, from their salaries. A, a worker has to go directly to the union and, and pay them. And so they have to go around to their members and, and collect, uh, you know, which we know that's just a, a just a, a direct attack. The other thing that they do is say it, you don't have to be a member of a union to get the benefits that the union have. I guess that's the right. That's a part of right to work, mm-hmm. the so-called the so-called right to work. Not true. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it it's, um, you know, I after reading that proposal, if I were a police officer or a firefighter or I work for the public, uh, I was a teacher. Certainly teachers are under huge attack right now. Right. Uh, I would just say I don't want any change. You know, I would just fight yeah. against any change, even if the law is written and it seems like the people are well-meaning. I could understand how they would just say, leave it alone. Maybe we could come back, you know, and, and when there's a less hostile time for us, uh, because at this point we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and there and there's no doubt that um, I think especially like in the city of St. Louis, the Democratic Party has participated in this sort of uh, demonization a little bit of like union, like, I mean, the Rainford has really going after the firefighters and, and I'm not going to pretend like I understand the economics enough to know whether, um, whether whose side is right, but he's been very critical and very much sort of demonizing the fire department as like, oh, well, everyone else is willing to give up cuts, but these firefighters are holding on to their, you know, they're greedily holding on to their pensions, you know, but they, they, um, they're not eligible for social security, um, in their role. So, so I can, I can understand for, for, I know, um, you know, I know that, uh, I, I know people who work for, have worked for the work for state government and they're not eligible for, for pensions. I'm wondering if that's common. 
they're not eligible yeah. for Social Security. So the only oh, thing no. they have is these pensions. And when you when you just say, okay, we're going to gut those, we're just then, not going to pay yeah, into them, what do they have? Nothing. And they live, you know, they have pretty hard jobs where they're very physically demanding um, jobs, obviously. So, so, um, so you can see, I mean, and then the, the, the democratic, some Democrats in the St. Louis, uh, city have definitely demonized like teachers unions as well, um, when they're attacking the public school systems. Um, so, so I can sort of understand that fear, but nevertheless, even with that, um, in my opinion, I mean, Every city in the country has local control except for St. Louis and Kansas City. And it really, I mean, it's, I feel like it should be up to the citizens of St. Louis to make these decisions. And they should be uh, empowered to punish the city officials if the city officials try to screw over the police department or if they try to screw over the fire department, just like in every other city where... You know, if the if the city officials do a bad job, then the citizens should be able to to sort of voice their opinion through voting. You know, so yeah, I agree. So with I don't yeah. I don't think the pension thing. You know, even though I can understand why the police officers association worries about it, in my opinion, that's not a good reason to not have local yeah. control. Yeah. So so I'm definitely still very much in favor of local control, even though that's a concern. And then uh, another thing I've kind of written extensively about is the city officials, as they're pushing for local control, they've been uh, coordinating very much with Rex Sinkfeld's group. And um, there was this especially ironic, I thought, post this week where um, Martin Cassis, the, the head of the St. Louis Young Dems, wrote a post for Vital Voice, which is like a local LGBT publication. And he said, um, Local control is an LGBT issue because the city of St. Louis is more gay friendly than um, the state of Missouri. Um, and what was ironic about it is he sent people to this petition site. Uh, and on the petition site, it, sa- it your, says you're signing up for United for Missouri's oh, email list. Oh, United for Missouri Prop a. is uh, the group behind Prop A. It's, uh, it's uh, Rex Singfeld's bankroll group. And Sinkfeld, I don't think necessarily cares about it, but the executive director of United for Missouri is this guy, Carl Bearden, who used to be a Missouri legislator, and he has an absolutely anti-LGBT record where he um, he voted, uh, you know, he voted to put on the um, statewide election this ballot initiative to ban gay marriage in Missouri, you know, totally cynical ploy to get Republican-based voters out. Um, he voted to make it illegal for um, college campuses to have like uh, LGBT groups on their campus. So he's just, you know, so it was really um, to me sort of dispiriting to see, you know, these local sort of Democrat uh, trying to get the LGBT community to sign up and, and on a website. Did you contact Casas? And... I haven't talked to him specifically about it yet. I've talked, yeah, I've talked to a couple other people. Um, like I've heard the uh, there was, yeah. Anyways, but um, so absolutely, a hundred percent, we need local control, in my opinion. But um, I don't think. Uh, but I think we also need to to make sure to hold elected officials' feet to the fire in the future. So yeah, and you know I agree with that, um, uh, very much. I think it's just important to note these issues, uh, 
but also I think local control is important just from a democratic perspective uh, and, and for democracy. So I guess uh, that was a good point to end. I think you ended uh, that very well. And uh, I guess, um, you know, this the hour is up, and, and so it's time for us to welcome in our uh, next host, uh, Beloved, uh, with his show Kama Sutra, who comes on right after us. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just close out the show. You've been listening to Student Activist Hub Radio. Um, I'm your host, Kevin, uh, with my co-host, Adam. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll have the show on podcast on Adam's blog, and uh, we will see you next week. <laughs>